books of the Bible. So before I get too much into that, let me pray, and then we'll dig into the Word. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your mercies, which are new every morning. Thank you again for your grace that exceeds all of our guilt, sin, shame, worries, concerns. Thank you again, Lord, for Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners, um, giving us um, hope of eternal life, uh, the promise that we can uh, be with you if we would lay down our own lives for your sake. And I pray, Lord, that you would use tonight as an opportunity not only to learn more about you, uh, but also to uh, be able to uh, connect with and bond with others uh, who are also in need of, of a Savior, Jesus Christ. So I pray that your word would guide us, that your spirit might knit us together, and that the Father would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, Joshua 11 actually kind of captures the fulfillment of promises that go back all the way to the book of Genesis. Um, we live at a time where I think people like these stories that are tied together. I mean, um, there are entire swaths of movies that build up over over dozens of, of films in order to come to some kind of epic battle or conclusion. And we're sort of there here in Joshua 11, where we had a promise in Genesis chapter 12 that God gave to Abraham that through his children and his children's children, the whole world would be blessed. That his, his sons and their sons and their families would inhabit a land in which they would dwell and God, God's favor would be upon them. And they were from there, from this promised land, be a nation that would go on to be a model for other nations and to be um, a shining light and a beacon of hope to all those who um, were far from God. It's a tremendous promise given um, hundreds of years beforehand, and it's only in Joshua that we finally get a fulfillment of these prophecies, things that had taken, again, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years to come to pass. So when we read these words, you have to see it from the point of view of Joshua and the Israelites that this is something they're fathers, their fathers, fathers, their fathers, 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 going generations back, had longed for and looked toward. It is something that when they actually experience it, it would have been um, such joy and such happiness and such celebration that they had finally achieved this promise that God had begun way back in Genesis chapter 12. Now, in another way, we are really just going to say a lot of the same things we already said in Joshua as well. We're going to learn, or we're going to come across some of the very same themes. And so I think it's, um, in a way, we'll be reviewing some of the lessons that we've learned as we've studied the book of Joshua. And, and, and as we encounter those themes, if you have any questions, actually, we, we, can, um, we can address those as well. We'll have a little bit of time. Um, but really, I do want to make sure that we read this and not just see a bunch of names and places that we've never been to, which is why you have a map on the back of your, your handout, um, but that we would see in these words the expectation of generations and generations and generations of men and women and children looking forward to this day where you can see the land had rest from war. That is to say that all that God had promised had finally come to pass and that you could almost, almost hope for and maybe wish that 
That's all you needed to say and that we wouldn't need the rest of the Bible. But we'll, we'll get to why there's still a bunch more pages after Joshua 11 when we get there. Let me read for you. I'm going to read it in sections as we go through it. Joshua 11 verses 1 through 5. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, that is the, the conquest of the southern nations of the promised land, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphath-dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And he came out with all their troops, a great Horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots, and all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now, almost half of this passage is, you know, Hebrew names and, and places, right? It's in another language. So uh, I remember as a kid, I'd read passages like this and just think, what is going on here? Who are these people? Why do I care? What's the connection? Where is this place? And in that sense, a picture can be worth a thousand words. So on the back of your handout, you can see those areas and those places. Um, and they are really just, uh, it's a landmass, Israel, or the promise, uh, the promised land, um, is a landmass that um, you could actually sink into Lake Michigan. So if you just transplanted what... Uh, what we'd call the promised land. Um, you see the map on the back there of the room. That, I believe, you could lose it in Lake Michigan. That's both how small that country is and how big that lake is. You can imagine all of the fighting and all the wars and all the lives lost that have occurred in that land, not just in the book of Joshua, but even until this day, over this tiny piece of land that could just be disappeared off the face of the map like that. Why is it so contentious? Why has there been so much fighting and, and violence there? Well, it is because of what the Word of God has said. Um, in other words, these names and these places still have relevance. Um, they say that history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. So you will see these same places and these same people groups show up over and over again in the Old Testament, some of them in the New Testament, and some even to this day. So we do care about these names and places. Some of the name places, they change over time. So if you look at the map on the back, there's question marks. Is this this location? Um, is this where this place was? Well, the reason there's question marks is because a lot of times these place names change over the years as the land exchanges hands and so on. So um, it, it'll help. That map will help you if you want to have a little bit uh, orient yourself a little bit in terms of these places and these names. So I won't go too much into that. Who is J uh, Jabin, king of Hetzor? Well, Hetzor was one of the largest city-states in the promised land, covered about 200 acres compared to Jericho, which is a mighty fortified city, which is only a space of about five to six acres. So uh, Hetzor was a gigantic city-state, the most prominent one in the area. And, of course, the king of it then would have been very powerful and uh, had a lot of authority. Now, you have to understand, typically, all of these different city-states, they would at best be neutral, but a lot of the times they'd be fighting against each other. That's just what happened in the ancient world, is they were constantly trying to um, 
uh, to gain power and control. So they would often be fighting. So it tells you something when all of these very different kings, uh, and you'll see a full list of their names in Joshua 12, come together to band uh, their forces against a common enemy, which in this case is the Israelites. Um, they saw what had happened in southern uh, portion of the promised land. Uh, they saw how the Israelites seemed to have the wind at their back and just uh, were, were conquering um, over all of these, um, all these peoples. The expression there that they were like the sand that's on the seashore, um, it doesn't mean infinite, of course. The sand on the seashore, you could technically count. It's a lot. It's not meant to say that there were millions or billions of people. They're just a vast number of people. It's, me- it's meant to feel overwhelming. Like if I were to ask you, hey, you want to go count the sand at the beach uh, on Saturday this weekend? I just like, no, that doesn't interest me at all. It's overwhelming. It's that same sense of seeing all these people and thinking, this is so many people. It's an overwhelming force. And, and yet, what happens next? Verse 6, Yahweh said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And Yahweh gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misrephoth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpeh. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as Yahweh said, He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, we see here the grace of God in giving victory to the Israelites. Why do I uh, speak of this as a a grace? Well, we talked about it this morning a little bit, if you're here with us, that God gives abundantly what we, uh, beyond what we could ever earn or deserve. Here, the very nature of God's encouragement to Joshua and the Israelites is in the phrase, I will give over all of them. So they see this vast host, an, uh, an amount you just wouldn't want to count. And it's overwhelming. It should make any one of us tremble in fear that this mighty force has arrayed themselves against you. And God says, I'm going to give them all to you as a gift. Well, it's a funny kind of gift um, to give over a slaughter of people, but we're talking about war. We're talking a certain military context. Um, It's one that we don't expect. You've never been uh, asked by God to have this kind of war against um, a pagan nation, so we don't expect this for ourselves. But for them, this was the grace that they needed to hear, that this overwhelming military force, God is going to give to them, and it is grace. Why is it grace? Well, the emphasis all throughout, like I said, from Genesis until this moment here, was that God was giving them the land. God told Abraham, you will have a land, a promised land for your descendants. I'm giving it to you. And that's been the language over and over again, that God is giving them a land. And this would be an act of God's grace to give it to them. Well, part of giving them the land is that it is occupied by these evil and wicked nations that need to be driven out. And so the grace of God, the gift of God, 
is also that they would subdue all of these wicked and evil kings. And we talked about why they were so evil and wicked. They were the kind of people to sacrifice their children to the fire in order to have crops. I, you know, I, was, I was shocked to, to, to see, I was, uh, I was you know, watching a little uh, documentary um, and, uh, on the Punic Wars, and the Romans still, up until the time of the Romans, there were people who sacrificed their children for the sake of a good harvest. And just, you know, imagine today that, you know, some, some uh, dad or mom is praying for like a raise, and they're like, you know, I really want this raise. You know, honey, get one of the kids. We're just going to, you know, go sacrifice them on an altar, and maybe that'll grant us favor in the eyes of our boss. I mean, that sounds awful and wicked, and it should, but that was the kind of thing they did regularly, and everyone just accepted it. That was the culture of the time, and that's why, or at least one of the reasons why, God wanted to um, not only his grace was twofold. His grace was to the Israelites to give them the land, but his grace was also to remove these very wicked nations and peoples uh, from the land because they were a terror and a blight in the eyes of man and God. Now, another thing to note here is that even though God is grace gifting this victory, it's completely of God. God's saying, I am going to deliver them to you like a wrapped up package. I'm giving them to you. It didn't come to them apart from the Israelites actually gathering and arraying themselves for a fight. We'll talk about it more next week, actually, when we we get to verse 10 of Ephesians 2 in the morning service. But grace doesn't imply the absence of works. Just because God gives us graciously salvation, forgiveness of sins, hope of eternal life, as a matter of his own love and kindness, it doesn't mean that works don't enter into the equation at all. It's just that grace is never earned by your works. But grace does work. Grace does works. If God's grace is manifested in his actions towards us, so God is a gracious God, and so he does good to us, when God's great grace works in us, what do you expect that we would do except also good works towards others, because that's how God's grace is manifested, doing good to us. So how's God's grace manifested in my life? As we do good works towards others. So in much the same way, um, the Israelites here, they couldn't just sit on their, you know, couches and uh, wait for this victory to come. They did need to show faith and trust in the Lord by lining up, arraying for themselves battle and to expect to fight. And they did. They struck them down until he left none remaining. Now, it's interesting that they struck them until he left none remaining. So who did the striking? That's the Israelites. It's a plural. They struck them. But he left none remaining. Well, who is the he? It's God. (laughs) It's Yahweh. So you see kind of the, the simultaneous nature. They could not have done it apart from God, but they did need to do it. And so it's the same with us. God gives us grace, not just to sit and watch TV and and pray that God's going to do some great glorious thing in us, but that by God's grace, we can go and do great and mighty things for the Lord. But he always gets the glory. Their victory is a gift, uh, even if they still needed to walk 
in that gift that they were given. And so we see that lesson, and we've seen it multiple times throughout Joshua as well. And of course, hopefully you would also see the need in your own life. Um, Just because God gives you grace doesn't mean you don't walk in it. Um, Next, verse 10 through 15, we see the blessings of obedience. So Joshua uh, turned back at that time, verse 10, and captured uh, Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as Yahweh had commanded Moses' servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that Yahweh had commanded Moses. We talked already um, previously about this command that Joshua had to destroy everything uh, in all these uh, nations and cities where um, these um, uh, godless and and wicked nations dwelt. Um, I won't rehash that whole discussion, but we had kind of that... um, uh, that criticism that sometimes is thrown at God. Well, how can God ordain uh, the death of all of these people? I mean, men, women, children, like the Israelites had to kill all of them as they went to these cities. Well, that's a hard thing to, to grasp, and I'm not going to su- suggest that it's a, it should be an easy thing. God tells you to do it, you do it. Um, I can tell you for a fact that, that um, the Israelites should have been an absolute trembling and, and fear of the Lord as they went through these cities. Because every time they lifted a sword against another person, they were to understand the penalty of sin, the judgment of sin. Nothing was happening to those people in Hazor or Jericho or Ai um, that was not god condemning, judging sin. Yes, the instrument of it was the Israelites, but the judgment was God's and God's alone. None of those Israelites could say, I am the ultimate judge, I'm the jury, I'm the executioner, and here I am, and it is by my judgment that you have fallen short and now to death with you. They ought to have been in absolute trembling fear that this is the cost of sin, is death. The penalty, the wages of sin is death. And they should have been absolutely sure to never ever do the things that these nations were doing lest the same judgment fall upon them. And of course, you know the tragedy is that the Israelites would end up doing the exact same things that these pagan nations were doing, even including offering up their own children to the fire as a sacrifice for a good harvest. Yeah! No, absolutely they did. I know. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I know. It should, it should absolutely shock you that they would go around and do this. I mean, you just, I mean, you know what looms over the book of Joshua is judges. 
In the book of Judges, you will see over and over again that they fall into that trap. And they will fall into that trap for a thousand years. 800 years. <laughs> 800 years, they will cycle through doing the same things that all these pagan nations did. They are going to do it themselves. And you know what God is going to do? Because he's consistent. He doesn't show partiality. God brings other nations to judge them just the same way the Israelites came in and judged these pagan nations. So God is not showing partiality. God has the same standard. And when the Israelites fell short of that same standard, God also brought judgment to them. And we got to have that big picture. The big picture is that God has every right to judge sin. And sometimes he does use other people to bring about his judgment. But we must always remember all judgment is of God's. He is the one that has the right over life and death. You know, this is, uh, I'll just say this just because I know we already did a sermon on this, but, um, you know, everyone is going to die. That is a very harsh truth. Really, it is. Um, it's something that I remember being a kid and it bothering me. My own kids, they're five. You know, Uriah's starting to say he's not even five yet. Like, I don't want to die. Like, yeah, me neither. But that is a fact of the matter. Everyone will perish from this earth who is alive unless the Lord comes before that. And so what we find tragic is often how someone dies. You know, oh, they die at a young age, or they die in an accident, or they die of some horrible disease with a lot of suffering. But, you know, if we, if if we can kind of detach ourselves emotionally a little bit, we don't have to say, but everyone dies. And the manner of it is completely up to God. And we, we trust him for that, and we fear God for that, and we, we want to um, live for God while he gives us breath. But the manner of our death is up to God's choice. The time that he wants to bring judgment on those who have sinned and rebelled against him, that's up to God. And so here, we just have to see it was their time for judgment. God had ordained that this was the time that they would have to make an account for their sin. And so we can talk about that more if you want, but I think you, you guys understand that. But we see a phrase here that comes up a number of times, and that is that they did just as Yahweh had commanded Moses, or, or, or here as Moses commanded Joshua. So you see that idea of obedience, that these were coming, things were coming to pass, and there was obedience involved. And you can go to Deuteronomy 20, 16 and 17, um, to see one of these commands that God gave to Moses to, to uh, go and uh, bring God's judgment against these pagan nations. But uh, I, I want to point out something because we just talked about grace, right? God graced them this victory. He gave it to them. They didn't deserve it. He said, I'm going to fight this battle for you. But then we have obedience. We're having a commendation. They did everything as God commanded. So what is the relationship between grace, God just giving you what you don't deserve, and obedience? Oh, I need to do the right thing. I need to avoid doing the wrong thing. Well, I think we tend to think of them as opposites, but they do go together. And, and this is the way I'm, I try to think of it more. I think when we think of obedience, we think of a list of things I have to do Here's the list of things I shouldn't do. And we just, um, 
you know, I just think of when I was an elementary school kid and there was the rules up on the board. So obedience means you do this, you do these things. You listen to the teacher, you don't kick, fight, punch, spit on uh, other kids. I mean, you know, all the rules that you have, do's and don'ts. And that's what we think of obedience. But obedience is not, <laughs> the point of obedience is not, here's a list, you do it or you don't, you know, you, you do the things you're supposed to do, you don't do the things you're not supposed to do. It's more like, <laughs> obedience is more like uh, a manual for building something. So I am a pretty, I'm, a, I'm more or less a stickler for manuals. So I get an Ikea bookshelf, and I do go through every single step. And I don't, you know, I make sure, <laughs> thanks for the thumbs up. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I get a Lego set, and I'm going to go through every single step and make sure I do it right. Because I know what happens when I don't, when I skip a step or I miss a step, then I, and I end up uh, making a mistake, and I got to undo a bunch of stuff. Maybe you've experienced that as well. Well, obedience is more like a manual that gets you to a certain goal or end, okay? Um, if I follow the manual, I will have an Ikea bookshelf. The manual is explicitly for the purpose of creating a bookshelf out of the parts I have. I'm not supposed to build something out of it. If I try to build something out of it, I'm not going to. If I try to build a refrigerator out of the Ikea bookshelf pieces, I can't do it. And the manual doesn't, is not intended to get me to that point. God's commands, they're not just a list of do's and don'ts. When the Bible gives commandments, when God gives commandments, they communi- they're communicating, this is the way things should be. The manual for an Ikea bookshelf is saying, this is the way things should be. It should be a bookshelf, not something else. Disobeying is trying to turn, again, an Ikea bookshelf into a piano. <laughs> it's not going to work. It's not how the parts fit, to get, fit together. It is just, just wrong. So I think what we can lose when we think of obedience and disobedience just as a set of rules and laws, like those rules and laws, oftentimes you don't get any overarching point to them. What are they guiding us toward? Is there a picture or is there a, an outcome for obedience that is really the point of the focus? I'm not just following you know, Ikea instructions because I like following instructions. I'm doing it because I need a bookshelf because all my books are all over the floor. Well, God isn't just giving us a list of do's and don'ts that are arbitrary. You do this, you're a good person. You do that, you're a bad person. No, his commandments show you how to be like him. And that's the way it should be. We're made in God's image. We're supposed to be like him. That's how we find our fulfillment. When we try to be something else, we're going against what God's design is. Disobedience is trying to be something that you're not. You're not supposed to find your fulfillment in having the, the, the biggest social media following. You're not supposed to find your identity and meaning in your job or even your family. Those are not bad things. None of those are inherently evil things. But you see, God made you for his glory, to relate to him, to be his child. And so obedience is just how you do that and how you be that. To do anything else is just to be something outside of the way things should be. Now, of course, we do miss the mark. Of course, we do sometimes force a piece the way it shouldn't be. We try to be something that we're not. And that's what grace is there for. Grace is the assurance and the hope that we can have another chance. (laughs) Um, 
and maybe probably stretching this anal- analogy too far, but uh, I appreciate that that at least Ikea, they tend to put extra parts in there because they know you're going to break something or you're going to lose a screw. And I can't tell you how many times I've lost some tiny screw in my garage. I just, hours I've spent trying to find it and trying to like get a magnet out. And I can't tell you. And if only they had just thrown another screw, knowing that I was going to lose a piece, if they just throw in another screw in, um, that would have been amazing. Save me hours. I'm telling you now I'm getting a little bit like, like sad at how much time I've spent looking for little screws that I've lost in the garage. Um, you know, when I'm not looking for it, that's when I'm going to find it. But God's grace is like, he knows you're going to screw up. Like he has extra, I know now I'm really milking the analogy, but it, it's, it's that relief of saying, do I have an extra one of these parts? I do. I don't have to spend hours of my life feeling sorry for myself. I can't believe I lost that, you know, peace or whatever. God is going to make us what we need to be even when we screw up. God's grace is that we can't screw up his plan. And that's why you should keep putting one foot in front of the other. That should give us a hope, not a, you know, a a resignation. Uh, God's going to work it out anyway. But there's a hope and a motivation to keep pressing on when we know that though we fail God's commandments, he wants us to be what what he wants us to be. I can't get there on my own. I can't be like God. How could I possibly be like God? I must need God's help to do that. And God says, yeah, I know. So I give you the commands, but I also give you the grace to obey those commands. Coming back to Joshua then, the the remark over and over again in the book of Joshua, we've pointed this out before, is that he did as Moses commanded him and as Yahweh commanded Moses. And these are said not only to highlight Joshua's obedience and faithfulness, because he was, he did often obey, not all the time, he screwed up a couple times, but he was a faithful man. But really it's not to put all the light on Joshua, how great he is. You know, what a great, fantastic, godly leader. Rather, when it's said, especially in this context, is to say that God is fulfilling his purposes. That God is doing, making sure that things are going the way they should be. This is more to say about God than about Joshua. Yes, you want to commend Joshua's obedience and Joshua's faithfulness, but we've, like I said, seen Joshua screw up and it didn't thwart God's plan. God is going to make sure that his word is kept. So God does want our obedience. He does. But our motivation is to see that obedience is for the purpose of making us like him, bringing us closer to him. It's not just do this and don't do that and just follow these rules, but that we get to be closer to God. We can live a godly life. And thankfully, when we mess up, we can't mess up because God's grace is sufficient. It ensures that when we fall short, which is a lot, he'll be faithful to bring things to pass according to his will. Now, just a quick comment there. It says that they burned Hazor and they didn't burn the other cities. Well, God did not command anywhere that the cities be burned. Didn't say they shouldn't burn either. It just there's no commandment about that. That was something that, that uh, Joshua was free to do or not to not do. Um, there is a promise that God did make to the Israelites, Deuteronomy 6, 10, and 11, that you will dwell in homes that you did not build or earn. 
So part of God's grace was also to give them the land and the homes of these people. And again, you might say, well, that kind of seems like an awful, you know, it seems like they're stealing it or, or all these things. But again, remember, these people had met with God's judgment. Um, this, this was something that they brought upon themselves. Um, we'll balance that in just a second uh, with God hardening their hearts. But God was intending to supply the needs of the Israelites who had been roaming around for 40 years, no home, to, to these homes there. But Hazor was burnt, maybe because it was the biggest threat to the Israelites. Um, we don't know for sure why. So if you're wondering why they burned Hazor, uh, but not the other places, text doesn't say um, but that's maybe a best guess is that since they were representative of the rebellion against the Israelites, their city was burned. Uh, verse 16, moving on from there. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal God and the Valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was Yahweh's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as Yahweh commanded Moses. The conquest was grace to the Israelites. It was judgment to everyone else. And it's just another example of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Yahweh hardened the hearts of these pagan kings and nations to not seek peace with Israel, but instead to fulfill this purpose of being devoted to destruction and shown no mercy. That seems kind of harsh, but it's implied by the phrase simultaneously that no one sought peace with Israel. And it kind of carries that, you know, connotation that they could have or even should have, but almost lamentably, no one did except for the Gibeonites, which we talked about in Joshua 10, who had uh, deceived in their desperation Israel into making a peace treaty. Again, won't, won't uh, or uh, I'm sorry, Joshua 9, won't uh, rehash all that we said about the Gibeonites, but it's clearly implied that they did something that the other nations did not, which was to seek peace with the Israelites. Was that, it sounds like it was an open option on the table, but they didn't take it. So that's on them. But then it also says Yahweh hardened their hearts. So then you're back to, well, okay, so then God is, this is God. God did that so that they would not seek peace. So it's God's fault. But again, there's other passages that are very clear. These pagan nations, they were super bad. They're super evil, wicked people that needed to be um, even eliminated from the land. They were such a threat to themselves and to other people. The book of Exodus, God says that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, takes responsibility for it. But then the text also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, there is a tension there. I do want to leave you with this assumption, I think, well, not I think, that ultimately God's sovereign will is behind everything that happens. Even the acts of our own will 
are somehow part of God's will. Even as God is very clear that the responsibility for our actions is at our own feet. I mean, you, you, you can wrestle with that um, and bring that to the Lord, but the, the Bible just does not try to um, give you some philosophical resolution to that conflict. Somehow everything is a part of God's plan and will, right? I mean, nothing exists except for God bringing into existence and nothing that he's created is greater than him or can go against his will. So by definition, everything that's happening is a part of God's plan and purpose. But sin is not a part, uh, is not anything you can attribute to God. So we still have the responsibility of our sin. We won't rehash all of the conversations we had in Ephesians about predestination and, and God's choosing. Um, we can talk about it over dinner if you want. Um, but we here we do have one of those, again, tensions where Yahweh is making clear that he wanted not to show mercy on these people. And they received the just judgment for their sin. Yes, God can choose to forgive as he pleases, but he doesn't ever have to. It's like saying that every murderer should be absolved of their murder and declared innocent. Well, you would never assume that. You would say, well, no, if a, if a for sure guilty murderer was convicted of that crime and given punishment, you'd say, yes. Well, that is what's happening here is that uh, these people um, even rejected pursuing peace with God. And so they got exactly what was coming to them in terms of um, their judgment, their fate of death. But we should again look at this and see the Gibeonites, though, they saw what was happening and they were freaked out and they were in fear and they did everything they could to make peace with the Israelites, even trying to deceive them. And when that didn't work, they offered their own lives as slaves in order to avoid the judgment. You also have the example of Rahab, the prostitute, who also um, understood that Yahweh was the only true God and said, I, I, I know that you are right. In humility, she uh, hid the spies and made a way for them to escape. And so she was one of the, the ites, you know, that should have been destroyed and wiped out, but she was spared. So there's always in God's wrath and judgment, yes, salvation, mercy, grace. How that lines up with who he chooses to harden Maybe we'll have to ask God one day, but this is where the text leaves us, is seeing these uh, nations as objects of God's wrath and judgment. Rightfully so. Lastly, verse 21 through 23, we have the hope of peace in the Middle East. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left of the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that Yahweh had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. <laughs> Who are the Anakim? Why did they get kind of singled out as a people amongst all the other nations? Why did they get singled out um, in this paragraph? Well, uh, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, in verse 28, 
Moses is, is telling the Israelites the story of how they ended up where they are. So it's a, he's giving a little bit of the backstory. And uh, in order to make sense of this, probably be helpful to remember the backstory. After the exodus out of Egypt, you know, let my people go, firstborn all die, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. Um, they're supposed to head straight after, well, they go to Mount Sinai, receive the Ten Commandments, and they're supposed to go from there into the promised land, right? So that generation of people who saw the wonders in Egypt, who saw the Red Sea parting, um, they came to Sinai and they worshiped the golden calf. And you already know, yeah, they're probably not, <laughs> they're, they're already screwed up. They're already not thinking rightly about their relationship to the Lord and who they need to be. So as they're heading to the promised land, they sent spies out to the promised land to give a report. And if you remember, um, they all gave this report that the land was too hard. It was the people are too big and too tough. And only Joshua and Caleb gave uh, a contrary report. No, no, no. We can take them. The promised land is ripe for us to take. But who did the Israelites believe? Joshua and Caleb or the other spies? The other spies, and so for their unfaithfulness to trust God, they ended up wandering the desert, right? For 40 years, they end up wandering the desert. And so here in Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to a whole other generation of Israelites. The ones who had seen the Red Sea part, the one who had seen the wonders in Egypt and fled from Pharaoh's wrath, who had experienced the liberation of God, they're all dead. These are now the children of that generation who had been unfaithful, who had listened to the other spies and did not enter the land. So Moses is telling them what had happened. And he mentions this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 20, uh, 28. Um, we'll start in verse 26. Yet you would not go up. He's talking about that generation, their, the, the parents' generation. You would not go up or rebelled against the command of Yahweh your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because Yahweh hated us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are for, great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. So, the spies had reported that these Anakim were specifically the ones that terrified them about entering into the promised land. They're, they're huge. They're buff. They're well-fed. How can we, a bunch of, of slaves who had just escaped Egypt's thumb, how can we possibly destroy these people who have so many resources, who are soldiers and who have armor and are well-fed and, and well-kept and they're walled cities. How can we take them on? And so these spies made the people fear, but specifically the sons of Anakim, this people group. So remembering that, remember this all ties together, in Joshua 11, Joshua makes sure to address those same people and saying they cut off the Anakim from the hill country. They drove them out and they killed them all until they were only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, which is kind of the, the southern coastal plains of the Philistines and not, uh, not the promised land. So they'd driven out these very same people. In other words, they're being reminded that they, in their unfaithfulness, had forestalled entering into the promised land. And here they were now. Who were they? The Anakim. 
They're nobody. You know, we wouldn't even know who they are almost apart from the Bible mentioning their name. They could have had this victory 40 years earlier, but in their fear and lack of trust of the Lord, this is their children who got to inherit the land. But Joshua makes a special effort to mention them here in the very last section of the conquest um, chronicles to say, those Anakim, we, 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 we took them out. They're gone. We had no reason ever to fear them. And so the whole land, it says, they took the whole land. This is a military control of the promised land. It's not that they had wiped out every single inhabitant or that they captured every city. It was just that on a political and military level, there was no more opposition and they were in charge of the whole land. But again, as we all know, this is going to be a relatively short-lived peace. The book of Judges, the rest of the Bible, it looms over Joshua, because even here at this moment, the people, the people's hearts are already turning away from the Lord. We know how Joshua is going to end. It's going to end with Joshua calling them out on their sin, that they've already intermarried with the pagan nations. They've already set up idols of the pagan nations in their own homes. So you already know when you read the end of it, it's going to turn out bad. They're going to forsake God, aren't they? And how does judges, what is the refrain from judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They all sought their own way. After Joshua dies, their land is thrown into chaos. They do all the things that the wicked Jebusites and Perizzites and Hittites and Amorites and Canaanites did. Sin is this pervasive. There can be no peace in the Middle East. There can be no peace anywhere until there is no sin in the heart of any person. From the, that, you know, this is a 1400 BC about till now, 3,400 years later, I can tell you that every war and every conflict has occurred because of sin, whether in the Middle East or anywhere. There can be no peace in the Middle East. There can no, be no peace in this world until all sin is dealt, dealt with and judged. What's the problem with that? That sounds like a good plan. Yeah, I get it. There can be no peace until all sin is dealt with and judged. Wait, hold up. What's the problem? I'm a sinner. <laughs> if God has to deal with sin in order for there to be with peace, I need to be wiped out. All of us would. And that is a valid way for us to achieve peace on this earth. It's as if all the sinners were killed, wiped out. That is a valid way for God to do it. But God, being rich in mercy and love, what did he do? He sent Jesus to die on a cross to forgive sinners. There's another way that there can be a judgment of sin without destroying the sinner. And that is if God himself ordains and allows for his son, his perfect son, to take human flesh and stand in our place, to die the death we should have died, to take the wrath of sin upon himself so that God can say, all right, since Jesus has stood in the place for you, I will now treat you as if you were my sinless child. I will declare you innocent. And that is another way that God could bring about a sinless peace is by 
making sinners sanctified by cleansing us from our unrighteousness and our sin. War did not solve the issue here. It is only in the death of Jesus Christ that there can be a true, true elimination of sin and a true, true peace. And so as we close this out, you almost would wish that this peace, the land had rest from war and there was never ever a need for war again. But in sin, we know that millennia of wars have come to pass with every nation and subsequent ruler promising peace, promising a thousand year kingdom, promising that they are the ones that are going to fix the problem. But without taking care of sin, there can never be a fixing of the problem. The Prince of Peace, he came and he did what no one has ever done. King or peasant, ruler or worker, he died for his people. Jesus Christ, Son of God, died for his people. And so that is the only solution. That is the only way we're going to achieve peace in the Middle East or anywhere. So even as we read these words and, and see the fulfillment of so many years of expectation and hope from Abraham until Joshua, we are still left, well, it didn't happen. Why is there still more in my Bible? <laughs> it's because they needed a savior, a, a king who was perfect and who could uh, live a perfect life that they couldn't live. So any questions or comments as we close out? Once Joshua is going to take on, as our studies in Joshua is going to take on a different look uh, once we get past uh, chapter 12, because you're going to get into inherit. <clears throat> we're going to get into inheritance, and it's just going to be, well, these people get this part of the land. These people get this part of the land. It's almost like a legal document. So if you've ever read, um, if you've ever read like uh, in- inheritance documents or legal documents, it is a little bit dry unless you're the one that's getting the stuff. And so you're not, so you're going to be like, okay, what this is. So we're going to approach this a little bit differently um, because a verse by verse study of this doesn't necessarily yield much because it's going to be kind of familiar. So not that this is your last chance, but any questions or comments about Joshua? um, And then we're going to get into kind of a, um, a certain zone of looking at Joshua after this. There are no dumb questions. So yes, then. Yeah. No, I I agree. I I know it sounds really harsh to put it like a baby into. They would have these um, statues, yeah, and uh, it'd have these arms, you know, and they stick the babies in the arms of this glowing red hot statue and just fry the babies yeah well no 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 it, it is a comparison because the, the uh, we've sanitized it yeah uh, that that's true too so the 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 line the 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 way that this was um, being advertised, at least a few years ago, was that you know an abortion um, 
allowed me to have a thriving career. You know, without, without an abortion, uh, I would have been saddled in debt. Without an abortion, I wouldn't have been able to get my master's. Without an abortion, I wouldn't have had the success that I have. Um, but, but that is really, you know, boasting about, well, uh, in order for me to have the success and the degree and the money, I had to sacrifice my child. So, I, I mean, it's, sanit- it's more sanitized than, than putting a baby on this, you know, altar that's going to burn alive while you're looking at it. But the heart is the same, and it's just consistent. I mean, in a way, it's not, it's not unexpected that, oh, yeah, of course, we would think this way, that the that, that children are keeping me from achieving all of my hopes and dreams. So, yeah, if I could get rid of it kind of in a sanitized way, why not? You know, and I, I think that there is a, a lot of overlap. But neglecting your kid, too, I mean, just to see your kid as baggage and, you know, to, to pass them off to someone else, I mean, that's the same heart. God looks at the heart. You know, the, the way it looks can, can be different based on culture. You know, what sacrificing your children looks like is going to differ from culture to culture. It's very easy for us to condemn the very obvious ones and the grotesque ones, but the heart is still the same. You know, kids are keeping me from getting what I want, or maybe sacrificing my kid can get me what I, what I need. That's, in, that's been in our hearts for generations, for, for millennia. Yeah, yeah, Ethan. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of um, trying to protect ourselves from the consequence of our actions. That's, that's, that's in these days. You know, what can I do to protect myself from actually having to deal with my consequence, uh, consequences of my actions? And, and to instill that in people is very dangerous. It, it sounds like grace. Like, you know, God's grace is that uh, I, God's grace is not that you don't have to suffer the consequences for your actions. It's, it sometimes can sound like that, right? Like I can screw up a lot and God can still fulfill his purpose in me. But the Bible is very clear that when you intentionally sin in order to merit God's grace and presume upon God's grace, that itself is a sin. And that itself is an attitude that doesn't understand God's grace is transforming us to be more like him, not excusing us to not be like him, right? There's a big difference between those two views of grace. So, any other questions, comments? Ah, <laughs> what'd you bring? <laughs> it's, a, it's a potluck, so we'll see, we'll see what's here. We'll find out in a second. We'll find out in a second. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Uh, Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your grace and mercy. And it does make me cringe at times to think of, of the destruction. Um, it's, it's, when you read it, of course, we're not seeing the sights and smelling the smells of dead, decaying bodies, of burning homes, uh, the sight of, uh, of, of dead women, children, and men. Um, but as much as uh, we can imagine such a sight, uh, it should make us realize how horrifying sin is, that whenever we see war and, and death, famine, disease, Whenever we see um, disaster, uh, it should make us think sin is, this is because of sin. This is the hordeness of sin. Why did Adam and Eve dare to defy God and bring this upon all of us? And yet, Lord, 
We're sinners. We can sympathize with why someone would sin because we do it all the time. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have the humility to say, God, we need forgiveness, a forgiveness that we cannot earn, a forgiveness that we cannot ever bribe you to give to us, a forgiveness, Lord, that is instead completely of your grace and of your mercy, that pleads with you to treat us better than we deserve, that believes that, God, you would do something so drastic in your love for us as to uh, have your own son crucified for our sins. We pray, Lord, that when we think of that kind of grace, um, that it would, it would humble us, that it would elicit worship from us, that it would draw us near to you, that it would cause us maybe to be just a hair bit less judgmental towards other sinners and instead instill, us, instill in us pity and compassion on the lost. So thank you, Lord, for all these lessons. I pray that you would... <clears throat> Bless our evening, and as we enjoy a dinner and a meal together, that it might encourage our souls um, to honor you and to worship you. So thank you, Lord, again, for your faithfulness towards us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.